This is Telehealth Unmuted, a podcast developed by Heartland Telehealth Resource Center. HTRC is one of 14 federally designated telehealth resource centers in the country, serving the states of Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. We know there's a huge need for up-to-date telehealth-related information, from billing and reimbursement to psychology and online therapy. So we're bringing subject matter experts and their insights right to you. I'm your host, Kara Lawler, Director of Health Communication Research Center, and this is Telehealth Unmuted. So today on the show, I have a phenomenal guest. I'm so excited to introduce her. Dr. Cooper holds a doctorate in instructional technology and distance education with an emphasis on telemedicine adoption. She's the CEO and founder of Diversity Telehealth, which provides telemedicine consulting to healthcare organizations and schools that target underserved populations. She's also the CEO and founder of Come On Now, a revenue-generating tool that replaces no-show medical appointments with billable telemedicine visits. That's a mouthful. She's very accomplished, as you can tell. So we're excited today to have her. Welcome, Dr. Cooper. Great. I'm so happy to be here. Yay. Me too. Um, So we got a lot of questions to cover today uh, because Dr. Cooper has done a lot of things that are really interesting in the telemedicine world and beyond. I wanted to jump in first to kind of set the groundwork and the golden question always when I'm looking at somebody's, you know, career trajectory is how did you get here? Can you tell us a little bit about your professional background, your education, career timeline, you know, whatever anecdotes that come up when people ask, you know, where did you, how did you go from point A to point B? Well, we, and, and thanks for asking that question because and I'm glad you're letting me explain because it wasn't a linear trip. It definitely had zigs and zags. So I started, I definitely wanted to be that business person. I, I wore the suit with a little bow tie, which is probably before your time when women were wearing the, the suits that looked like men, but they were really women, you know, and it just, I wanted to be a corporate executive. And so I got my undergrad in business from Mizzou and was on my way at Commerce Bank. And it was a wonderful experience, but I just, I just didn't really feel like it was the best fit for me. And so um, I thought I've always wanted to be a teacher. I played teacher when I was little. I forced my brothers and sisters to be my students and I got to be the teacher and we had recess and all of that. And so I was pushing that back in the back of my head and I thought I'm gonna push, I'm gonna make this business degree work. So I left the banking industry and went on to telecommunications. And so at Sprint and Sprint was big in Kansas City, it still is, but you know, different names, but. And so I tried that, I tried to be a corporate executive there, but in the back of my mind, I thought, I wanna be a teacher, I wanna be a teacher so badly. And so thankfully I was laid off during one of the many sprint reorganizations. Um, And I was actually grateful. And I saw my manager later and I thanked him for laying me off. It took a while before I got to that point. I don't wanna say the day I got my walking papers, I I shook his hand, I'm not (laughs) gonna say that. But, But really, it was such a, a good place to work and they paid so well, I never would have left and I never would have been able to fulfill my dream. So um, when I was laid off from Sprint, I decided, okay, I'm going to use some of the severance money and I'm going to start a company. So I started um, a company where I did resume writing and those types of things. And so that was exciting. 
but I still wanted to be a teacher. And I thought, this is crazy. So I went back to school, got my teaching degree and became a business teacher. And so as a business teacher, I dealt with a lot of uh, uh, communications um, platforms and a lot of uh, technology. And that was good. And we had a wonderful experience at all the different schools that I went to and, and worked at. And I loved my job. It was the best job in the world. Well, I did that for 25 years. 25 years just flew by. So 10 years in corporate, 25 years as a teacher, and I loved it. And I thought, okay, I need to add more hours. You know, as, as a teacher, you have to get certified every three years and then every five years. And I thought, this is crazy. Why do I keep adding these hours without having a degree that goes along with it? So I did my master's of arts in teaching. And then I thought, well, I'll, I'll just get a doctorate. That's the next step. So what can I get a doctorate in? I didn't really feel like I would be the best principal or superintendent because I feel like for that, you've got to really sacrifice your home life, your family life. And I just didn't feel that administration was the best fit for me. So I thought I really want to still help people because teachers are always helping people. And I thought, okay, if I can get into some type of business that works with what I'm doing, I could be a trainer or I could do something and so that I'm still helping people. And part of a doctoral degree, um, there's a part there where you have certain rotations. So the rotation I had was delivering a service from a distance using technology. That's instructional technology actually, um, or kind of an abbreviated form of it. And so from delivering education from a distance using technology, law from a distance using technology, and then medicine from a distance using technology. And I thought, hey, this is great because I'm not the person to handle the blood and guts. So if somebody's, somebody's bleeding, I can't help you. But I always tell people I'm not that kind of doctor. So I wanted to be able to blend technology and healthcare and help people in underserved populations. So I did that, I finished it. I started in the diversity telehealth in 2014 and never looked back. I mean, I've been working with underserved populations trying to close the healthcare disparity gap between those people who have access and some people who don't. And people seem to think that, that um, people who live in cities have access to healthcare. It's really not that simple because where we might take an afternoon off to take our child to the doctor, or maybe we have a sore throat or we have a rash or something, a lot of people don't have that type of flexibility. If they're working on the assembly line and they're working in a really strict environment, they can't just be gone for a couple of hours. So sometimes family situations prohibit you from getting to healthcare, or maybe you don't have the transportation, or maybe there's a hundred other reasons why you can't get to the doctor or bring your loved one to the doctor. So I thought telehealth, the delivery of healthcare from a distance would help bridge that healthcare disparity gap. And so that's how, it's a long, long answer to a short question, but that's how things got started. So. And that, that's a great, great way to kind of get us up to speed because I think, you know, it's important for our listeners to know, you know, where you started and, and how that informed where you are now. And so kind of thinking about where you are now, with your company, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to get that company started? Um, how 
How did that process work? <laughs> it, it was not as easy as it looks on those entrepreneur shows. So when they talk about overnight success, overnight success takes about eight to 10 years. And so um, I was teaching at the time and um, the school where I taught, they cut me back a day. So I taught four days a week instead of five, which was a blessing because that one day allowed me to call on potential clients, allowed me to put proposals together. If I had a business trip, I could be gone um, one extra day to make that happen. So that was good. But unfortunately, it took away 20% of my salary. So that was kind of a little bit of a hardship. One thing to keep in mind, and this is just word to the wise, when you're starting a company, don't quit your day job until you have so much business that you can't do your day job anymore. So that you have so much business in your new endeavor that you can't take care of your primary responsibility, which is your eight to five or nine to five, depending on what you have. So the reason I say that is I started the business, I got the website, I did the business cards, I had the brochures and started going to Chamber of Commerce events, so excited. And all the people I talked to, oh, once you really get this going, we're gonna be one of your first customers. We're gonna sign up with you. We're really excited about what you're doing. Oh, this is great. But you know, when you hear that like eight or 10 times, once you get this off the ground, come back and see us. We're gonna be one of your first customers. We really wanna really help you out and really want to get you going. So I thought, okay, I've had so many people say that. I'm working four days a week. I'm not making as much money with my new endeavor, diversity telehealth, but I've got all these people who said that they want to be my client. I'll just go ahead and quit my job now. And we know how this ends. I'm just going to go ahead and quit my job now because all these people are waiting to use my consulting services. So I turned in my resignation. And as most teachers know, when you turn in a resignation, even when you turn it in in October or January, you still work through the year end. So still worked and, and did that. And it was, it was bittersweet saying goodbye to the kids and all that. But I thought, oh, I've got all these people lined up. I've got all these contracts that are gonna start as soon as the school year's over. So I start telling people I've quit my job. I'm doing diversity telehealth full time. Now let's, let's work on that contract that you were talking to me about. Oh, well, uh, about that, uh, I've gotta get clearance from the, my CFO or I've gotta get uh, more information on how we can actually make this happen. And a lot of them didn't happen. There was one contract for with a federally qualified health center that was my very first contract and it was in St. Louis. And training that staff and working with that organization, it was CARE STL, it's called CARE STL now, but it was uh, Myrtle Hilliard Davis Comprehensive Health Center back then. So I helped train their staff and wrote their proposal and it was my first my first contract, my first in. So I leveraged that when I went to other organizations and they asked, do you have any experience? Yeah, I just did a big proposal for an FQHC or Federally Qualified Health Center in St. Louis and just give them a call. And then that led to more and more and more. And that's, that's how things got started, so. And now you have lots of clients, right? <laughs> now I do. I have lots of clients. I'd like to have more clients. But uh, at that time, I was doing everything myself. But now I've got contract folks that I work with and grant writers and uh, cybersecurity staff and um, chief technology officer and developer. And so it's a lot bigger now. But it's, 
it's still good to have new new clients come in. So absolutely. And and kind of zooming out a little, I realize, you know, some of our listeners might not know what diversity telehealth is. So I wanted to ask you kind of as a blanket question, how would you describe it to somebody? Like what what's your boilerplate for your company? So the purpose of diversity telehealth is to bridge the healthcare disparity gap, meaning those people who have access to care and those people who do not. There are a lot of individuals of color and lower income and even those of the, of the majority population who don't have access to healthcare. So I mentioned a little earlier, just because you live in an area and there's a hospital within a mile distance of where you are or a doctor's office, if you don't have insurance, it's gonna be very difficult for you to get there. Maybe you have insurance, but insurance doesn't cover, like for instance, I have asthma. So there's quite a few medications that aren't covered on different insurance policies that, that are out there. Um, and then think about too, if I work from seven in the morning until seven at night, when do I go to the doctor? If I have, if my doctor's office isn't open on the weekends, I have to take off work. Well, what about my job situation? If I don't have a job where I can take time off and still have a job the next day, then there's insecurity there. And then also, what about those folks who, like I said, don't have transportation? And it takes them two buses and a transfer to get to where they need to be. And they've got to take all their kids in tow to get there. And then same thing coming back. What about those people who are caretakers for seniors or those with chronic illnesses? How are those people going to get to the doctor? I mean, there's Uber now, but Uber's connected and Lyft, but they're connected to credit cards and debit cards. What about those people who are unbanked and they don't have a bank account that they can connect an Uber or a Lyft account to? So there's a lot of different, they're called social determinants of health that prohibit people who don't have access to care from getting that care. So it's not like they want to stay home and be sick or they want to be disabled they're not able to get to where they need to be for one reason or another. And so diversity telehealth, the purpose is to use technology, to use their smartphone, to use, go to the library and use the computer there, um, to somehow, even a, a, it's called a POTS, plain old telephone system. You can pick up the phone and call your doctor. And now a lot of those types of services are reimbursable. So the tele, diversity telehealth website shows First of all, there's diversity telehealth helping uh, schools and helping federally qualified health centers to broaden their clinical solutions so that they can access patients, perhaps uh, behavioral health patients who don't want to come in because they feel there's a stigma attached to going into the office. They can talk to their provider from their homes. Maybe they can go out to their car for a half hour and take their break in their car and have a, have a session with their provider. So there are all these different ways that people can meet with their doctors and other providers without going into the office. And what I found, especially for those folks who are in transient housing, they're not our transitional living and they, they might be a little transient right now because of, of no fault of their own, but things happen. I started a 501c3, a nonprofit called Diversity Telehealth Community Network. And with that, I raise money and put money in the account. And then I'm able to give away Teladoc and other telehealth services for those people who aren't able to afford it. So for me, telehealth by any means necessary. Face-to-face um, -face with helping the, the hospitals and clinics to 
um, implement telehealth. Telehealth, um, an app that I created is also on the horizon, is pretty much done. Um, and then the 501c3 to provide the tele free telehealth memberships to uh, families in transition. That's really cool. Um, and so what types of clients do you, have you had in the past with your company? Is it often healthcare providers, any other types of organizations that you've worked with? Sure. Um, I have quite a few college students because families are concerned when, when their kids go off to college. A lot of, of colleges don't have a 24-hour clinic. So if, if their loved one gets sick on Friday night at seven o'clock, where do they go? And if it's Sunday morning at one o'clock in the morning, if it's, even if it's Christmas time and they have insurance, what doctor is gonna work on Christmas? So any type of patient has the opportunity to use uh, telehealth if it's, if it's with an organization that provides 24 seven service. And so, as I mentioned, I offer Teladoc for those types of clients. The other types of clients I have are kids in school. So I put together a pediatric telebehavioral project where I connect the children with their providers during the school day using an app on their on the iPad or even connecting them on evenings or weekends with a telehealth provider. So schools are my client, hospitals and clinics are my client for helping them design their telehealth solutions. Individuals are my client. I've had law firms as clients because a lot of small businesses can't afford the huge uh, premiums that are paid. So they can offer this type of service for their hourly employees that don't qualify for healthcare benefits. So just about anybody can benefit from telehealth, either a telehealth membership or the telehealth app that I'm gonna talk about in a little bit. Wow. That's so, you know, you came from uh, business and then education and then you started your own business. So through that process, how did you get up to speed when it came to the nuances of public health? You know, working with hospitals, working in kind of the medical realm, you know, what was that learning curve like for you, if any? And how did you, I guess, what was your experience in learning about your clientele as you were running this business? Well, the wonderful thing about getting a doctorate is it teaches you how to research just about anything. And Google is my friend, YouTube is my friend, but also getting out and shaking hands and going to workshops, the American Telemedicine Association, the Missouri Telehealth Network, the um, TRC, uh, is it Heartland Telehealth yes. Resource Center, <laughs> um, uh, Connected Health, Center for Connected Health Policy. Uh, there are so many different organizations. And once you get on those different uh, websites and start attending the webinars, there's just a wealth of information out there. Now there's so much information, I, I'm kind of overloaded with it, especially during the pandemic, a public health emergency forced uh, um, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare, Medicare and Medicaid, to um, relax its standards. I shouldn't say standards, guidelines. It definitely didn't relax its standards because the standards are in place. But relaxing those guidelines and allowing for a wider range of services to be reimbursable has had a huge influence on the number of people who have had access to telehealth. And in years past, the reimbursement wasn't there. So part of 
of my doctorate was the benefits and barriers of telehealth in the Midwest. It was actually part of the title. And one of the main barriers was reimbursement. If doctors aren't gonna get reimbursed for what they're doing, they can't provide that service. Legislation, regulations, those also were not in favor of expanding the telehealth benefits. So also uh, people weren't familiar with it. They weren't familiar with the technology, with the um, hardware and software involved. So there were quite a few barriers. And even though COVID has had a disastrous, disastrous effect on the population, it's opened people's eyes to see that there are alternative ways that they can see their providers and receive that medical care. So or with a terrible healthcare emergency, I think telehealth has been one of the silver linings for that. Absolutely. And I've heard that so many times, you know, in the last year, especially working on different telemedicine initiatives, I think that has been the common recurring theme is the awareness of um, that offering and, and the impact that the pandemic will have on the nature of healthcare going forward because of the adoption of telemed. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And um, it's just so interesting, you know, as you've been talking, I'm thinking of so many different follow-up questions because, you know, you've had so many different um, milestones within your career, but, you know, in the interest of time, I really, really want to hear about this app. Um, come on now, which you also developed in your spare time. Well, what's the reason um, I actually created the app was um, I was working with federally qualified health centers and um, a lot of them in, in my research with them were experiencing really high no-show rates. And so those no-show rates were impactful for in several ways. When there's a no-show, then the doctor doesn't, isn't able to bill. The patient is, has discontinuity of care. So when they should see their physician certain number of times a year, they're not able to with no-shows. And then also a lot of the clinics receive quality measurements from um, different federal agencies. And the federal, federally qualified health centers especially receive these quality ratings, and that has a huge influence on the amount of funding and other parts that keep that FQHC afloat. And so with that in mind, I thought, okay, these really high no-show rates, we, what can I do to help that? Telehealth can help that, but how are we going to get the people in to have telehealth or at least get them into the system so they know telehealth is available? And then um, the day before Valentine's Day on 2018, uh, my father uh, passed away suddenly, and um, he had some chronic illnesses he'd been struggling with, and he did try to go to the doctor as often as he was supposed to, but he just wasn't able to make it to his next appointment, and he had it on his schedule. If he could have gotten in sooner, I think it would have been life-changing, and I think I think that really would have saved him, and so um, when thinking about that, I thought, okay, he had chronic, some chronic illnesses. He needed to be seen sooner. There are all these no-shows and the average no-show rate for most clinics is 25%, which means it's quite a bit higher. So one in four patients will be a no-show. But when we're looking at primary care, primary care is so much higher, sometimes as high as 40%. 
And then there's the weather. If the weather's bad, they're not gonna come in. Um, if they're closer, maybe closer to the end of the month, if they don't have the money for the transportation and there's no free transportation available, then they're not gonna come in. So I thought, let me put all this together into some type of solution. So I developed a product called Sure Show. And Sure Show, the reason I call it Sure Show is that means people are sure to show up. But <laughs> with Sure Show, um, and I had a little ringy, whatever, uh, ditty. When, uh, see, how, how does it go? No shows mean no dough. And Sure Show brings cash flow. So it, that, that was, so that came about and I thought, okay, this is great. And so I'd been talking to a lot of the different FQHCs, HCs in town, and I was able to connect with Mid-America Regional Head Start, Mid-America Regional Council Head Start. So the Head Start organization, which is um, helping early education kids. And they had something, um, they wanted to respond to a HRSA grant proposal, but with that, they needed to have a clinic as a partner. And so they partnered with Slope Health and they needed an innovative way. HRSA was looking for an innovative way to get parents to bring their early education kids in. And so they reached out to me for SureShow. But SureShow has a huge functionality. It's usually geared toward hospital systems. So they wanted something that was easier to use, pared down with not all the functionality that SureShow offers, and so they asked me to come up with something that would be easier for parents to use instead of a huge hospital app. And so I created Come On Now. So Come On Now is just that. It wants you to come on now, bring your kids in, come on in for your visits, come on for telehealth visits, um, come on in for maybe it's at the daycare. There might be a mobile medical clinic there, a mobile dental clinic. So I created that app and um, I've got a lot of interest, Kansas, Missouri, Georgia, some people in Georgia found out about it. So it's, um, what it does is it sends a notification to the parent and asks the parent, would you like to have a visit, either telehealth or a clinic visit or a mobile medical visit? And then the parent says either accept or decline. And then that is sent to the clinic and they set up an appointment. And like I mentioned, it could either be telehealth, which should be on demand right then and there, or it can take place in the clinic. And um, some of the FQHCs are, have, have clinics inside local daycares. So trying to get the healthcare to the individual, wherever they are, by any means necessary, is what this is doing. So got some interest also from some of the other FQHCs and so I think this is definitely something that can help the parents and we're branching out to adult medicine. So it doesn't have to be a child that needs to come in, but this is an app that works on Android and iPhones. So if you go to the app store or the Google Play store and look for an app called Come On Now, C-O-M-E-O-N-N-O-W, and um, it's there and you sign up for it and then we connect you to your doctor and you start getting um, invitations to come in for your healthcare visits. My first question is, does it basically offer kind of like an online platform for scheduling calendar visits, but also encouraging telemedicine 
as like a form of visit. Am I understanding it correct? Exactly. That's exactly what it does. Okay. So, so not only does it encourage a telehealth visit, maybe they don't want a telehealth visit. Maybe they'd rather have in clinic care, or maybe they'd like the next time the mobile medical uh, clinic is in their neighborhood, they'd like to know when that's going to happen. Or maybe their child needs dental care. So whatever type of care that that individual needs, they can sign up for that. And it's going to be connected to the electronic health record that the uh, clinic uses. So right now we're in version one and it's pretty, pretty basic. It's called proof of concept, minimum viable product. So right now it does the very basics. We're already getting customer feedback and making changes and updates. So just like when you have on your phone an update is available, there are going to be a lot of updates available for this coming up. So version 2.0 will be out in a couple of months. But right now, the the basic product is available in the Google Play Store and the App Store. Super cool. And I'll be sure to link the information for this when um, this episode comes out. So be on the lookout for that information. Um, I'm wondering... How many people do you have on your team working on this app right now? Out of curiosity. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we, have, we have within my organization, we have a, um, he doesn't want to be called a, a chief technology officer. He wants to be called a digital strategist. So we have someone who's, who's working a lot with making sure that the app is HIPAA compliant, that it's secure, which it is. And so with that, he's also really guiding us on customer feedback when customers have questions or providers have questions, he helps us to kind of streamline that into an update in the app. We also have a developing a development team and that team is located in India and it has been amazing. So it's managed stateside and the software is managed stateside, but the creators of it are on another continent on the other side of the world. Oh, how did you find them? Well, I was in a um, an accelerator program, and it they had connections and different um, different um, folks who do work for startups. So this he was vetted by the best, and he has been amazing. He leads a team in India. Then I've met the team, and we have Zoom calls at one in the morning. Which um, thank goodness they don't show. We don't show our cameras because nobody should see anybody at one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and so in addition to the development team or dev team and the digital strategist, we also have a cybersecurity person because there are some bad actors out there that like to get into healthcare apps. Healthcare information is more valuable than other information that might be hacked. So he's on top of things there, he and his team. Also a marketing team, and they put together all the collateral um, for different presentations and things like that. And they also write grants, this team does. Um, and then in addition to that, we have some advisors to help us with investment and also advisors for product development and healthcare sales. So. Wow. That's it, a lot. It takes a it's village a to make an app. <laughs> Fun fact, everybody, it takes a lot That's of right. to do this. And it makes a lot of money. It takes a lot of money, but <laughs> we've been able to get grants um, from Digital Sandbox, and then we've just completed our Google for Startups. Um, we were also able to participate in the Pure Pitch Rally. We were able to get quite a bit of support there. 
through uh, Karen Finaroli and uh, some others. So it's been it's been great. A lot was, of bootstrapping. Yeah, right. And I was thinking, you know, about um, one of the items on your resume, which is the Pipeline Entrepreneurial Fellowship. Is that where you met this team or is that a different? <laughs> I've picked up people all along and it was so amazing because with the Pure Pitch Rally led to getting on the radar for Pipeline and then being part of Pipeline got me on the radar for Google for Startups. And so picking up different people all along, it's a network. Everybody, once you meet one group, it opens up another network and you meet more people and then going online for different groups and uh, webinars and workshops and um, the Small Business Development Council, SCORE, um, there are just so many different, uh, and Kaufman Foundation, there are so many different organizations out there and they can all connect you along with KC Collective and um, what's the other, KC Sourcelink. I mean, there's just a huge number of entrepreneurial resources here in the Midwest. So taking advantage of those. So cool. And it all kind of goes back to this idea that telehealth matters, right? Telehealth is really important for these communities. And that is the the goal of implementing telehealth is paramount to the, you know, ideation behind the app, behind your company. And so I wanted to ask, why does telehealth matter in the healthcare world? I mean, you've touched on it, but why does it matter so much right now? And why will it continue to matter? Well, I think that one of the main reasons that telehealth has become even more important is because it there has to be a, a backup method if people can't get in to see their provider. And we noticed March of 2020, the beginning of March of 2020, it was life as usual. March 15th and March 20th, everything was shut down. So elective surgeries were, were delayed face-to-face clinical visits were postponed. There has to be a backup plan. There has to be a support for the regular clinical visits. And now that we see that there are alternatives, especially for those folks who don't have access, um, low-income folks, people in rural areas that don't have the same number or ratio of provider to citizen as the larger areas, uh, specialty clinics, Think about those um, students and children on the autism scale. What a, a drive, a three-hour drive to see their provider that takes 20 minutes and then the three-hour drive back, how difficult that would be. Also think about those people who are in pain and they're having to travel. And not only are they in pain when they're sitting and they're sedentary in their homes, but having to move to a car and make that car trip or, or plane trip to um, see that specialist, an oncologist or others. So there are so many other ways that healthcare can be delivered. It's the same healthcare. Now, everything can't be done via telehealth. I mean, I acknowledge that. If it requires any type of procedure or needle stick or anything like that, of course, it's, it's not a good candidate for telehealth. It just can't be done. But there are so many other steps. The consult before a procedure, the wound care afterwards, being able to see that wound the dermatology that can take place because those HD cameras yield a much better image than the naked eye. And so it matters, telehealth matters because it saves lives and it brings healthcare to people who don't ordinarily get out to get to that healthcare 
or it brings healthcare to locations that don't have the same number of providers as more, um, more metropolitan areas. Absolutely. Um, I, I think you completely nailed it. And accessibility is a really big part of why um, telehealth exists and, and the purpose that it serves for for healthcare, especially you know in rural communities, especially in the heartland, which is shout out to Heartland Telehealth Resource Center, the regions that we serve, right? Accessibility is that kind of theme word that we see again and again and again. And so um, as we're kind of nearing the end of this interview, I I wanted to kind of close on a, a question that I've been wondering as you've been talking this whole time, and, and I think maybe our, our listeners are also thinking the same thing. Um, what advice would you give to somebody who is considering this field? And what I mean by field, um, entrepreneurship and healthcare, right? Leadership and healthcare, um, pursuing the type of journey that you've been on in, in implementing diversity telehealth. What advice would you give them? I, I think my the best advice is to do as much research as you can, but meet people. I know right now Zoom is is or Teams or Hangouts or whatever you want to call it are the main ways that people are are interacting. But the more people you meet and the more ideas you're able to get, the better way the better you can put your ideas together and come up with the product or the service or the app or whatever you'd like to create. It's so important to stay up to date on legislation and regulations and the um, Center for Medicare and Medicaid to see what's reimbursable. All of this information can be done through research from a computer or um, watching videos or webinars, um, joining, joining different associations, attending conferences, even if it's virtual. Uh, There's so many ways that you can get this information and make contacts and form your product or idea. And chances are, even if there's something that you're thinking of that already somebody's already created, you can take a different spin on it and create it a different way. And so my dissertation chair, Dr. Mike Simonson, always says, how did Alfred Hitchcock get his ideas for movies? Well, he got his ideas for movies by watching other movies. So if you go out there and look at other apps and look at other services and look at other products, what has somebody else already created? And you think, well, if I do it a different way, I'm going to get this audience. Or if I offer additional services in this way, then I'm going to be able to present this product in a different way and garner a different part of the market. So look at what's out there. How can you make it better, different, innovative? How can it apply to more people? And look at your market share. And I think uh, once you do that, it's the sky's the limit. I think that's really good advice. And I think that can be applied both here and really in any profession. So um, so Dr. Cooper, it has been such a pleasure. I wanted to ask, is there anything that I didn't ask that you would like to mention or touch on before we wrap up today? Oh, goodness. Let's, let's see. I'm trying to think of Maybe uh, someone or a product that you may have an idea for um, that may not exist, or maybe an idea that you have that already does exist that might be done differently. I'm always excited to think how people are going to change the world. 
What do you see as something that you think could change the world? Even if it's far-fetched and you don't even think you could ever create it, there's somebody out there that that might want to take that idea and run with it. So I am a performer when I'm not director at HCRC and I have a background in sketch comedy and improv and theater and it's a passion. I taught it. I led it for years and it's something I will always do. Um, And I also have a sibling with Down syndrome and she you know, watching her journey as her sibling has been really interesting, especially as she's learned verbal skills over the years. She's just a rock star and she's super smart. And, but that being said, watching her community evolve and learn, you know, verbal skills and go through um, speech therapy, physical therapy to be able to, you know, engage in the world and be able to hold jobs and be able to, you know, interact and and have that empowerment has been really cool. And something I've always thought would be interesting is fusing, fusing the worlds of performance art with the disability community, teaching them improv, teaching them how to do improv in an effort to also tap into fine motor skills and verbal skills. I don't know how it would work in practice. I have friends in grad school for speech language pathology um, and social work, and I just think it would be really interesting to find a way to, to meld those two together because the theater community has given me so much and taught me so much, and I can see it being applied to empower the disability community as well. That would be amazing to put that together. I mean, of course, as as you're thinking and as you're talking, the first thing that comes to my mind is, okay, then how would that company work? How would you set it up? Who would be the key players? They could all do it remotely. I mean, that, that definitely is a doable thing. It's an idea that has sort of developed over time. And you know, I have seen a lot of organizations start nonprofits that employ people with disabilities as well. And so that also just kind of <laughs> furthered um, the, the confidence I have in the potential that this idea has. So who knows? But I appreciate it. And (laughs) I don't think I've shared this one in a second. So (laughs) thanks for giving me the floor. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, so Dr. Cooper, it has been such a pleasure. I'm really excited to have gotten to speak with you today. I know our listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. And we will link her app, um, website, and any other relevant information um, in the social post. So please check those out when this episode is live, which if you're listening, it will have already been live. (laughs) So (laughs) go look at our social channels and thanks everybody. This has been Telehealth Unmuted. Be sure to share this episode and subscribe to hear future interviews with leading experts in the field. This podcast was made possible by the Heartland Telehealth Resource Center through grant number U1UTH42530 from the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth, Health Resources and Services Administration and Department of Health and Human Services.